FC Choir. I will have to say that. Um, thank you, everyone, for doing that this morning. I want to invite you to take and open up your copy of God's Word with me to Luke chapter 12. If you did not come last week, I, I won't leave you too far behind, but this is kind of a continuation of uh, what we started uh, last week in our text this week. Uh, we're going to be trying to finish up a little bit what we got started into and learn and look about more about, rather, the fear of the Lord. Uh, when our Lord says quite emphatically to us that we should fear the Lord, and he then repeats it again as he does in our text this morning, we better show some due diligence to pay attention. We better understand exactly what he means to take a pause and for a moment and really try to comprehend exactly what he's saying to us here. And so this morning, I want to try to give you some practical application as to what the fear of the Lord should look like in your life. How does one go about living their lives in the fear of the Lord? And I have to tell you that as I studied this and I read books about the fear of the Lord uh, and, and those types of things, I can confidently tell you a couple things. First of all, we desperately need to recover the fear of the Lord in our time and in our day. Think about it. How many times have you heard recently, or, or even at all for that matter, as to someone really being a God-fearing person? And you don't have to look very far in our culture and in our times that we live in our nation and see that this is not a nation who fears God. Especially when you have a whole segment of society that can look at a four-year-old little boy who falls into a gorilla exhibit at the zoo and then make the determination that the gorilla should have lived over the boy, or even the mother for that matter. These people, number one, they probably don't have any children, but those people surely do not fear the Lord. And that terminology is not really in our vocabulary, even as evangelicals, because when we go to describe someone who is like really devout or really sincere in their Christian walk, we might say something like, well, that person really loves the Lord or that person loves Jesus. And, and that's sometimes just used as a trump card to be played so that if there is any question about what someone believes about God or any question about how they live their lives before God, however blatant or contradictory that their life might appear, if someone says, they love Jesus, you're no longer allowed to question their beliefs or practices, however contradictory they are in the Bible. But I want you to hear me out. We as Christians are surely called to love God. Matthew 23, 37 rather says that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. In 1 Corinthians 16, 22, it says that if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. And so we most assuredly are called to be a people who love God. The Bible commands it. But my point of all this is to say that I think we've kind of cheapened what it means to love the Lord. Like anything else in this world, words are being dissected and their meanings are being changed and twisted to mean something else. Take, for example, in the last couple of years, the word marriage or the word man or the word woman, or ladies' restroom for that matter. 
There's a lot of linguistic gymnastics that are going on everywhere, and I don't think the church is excluded, and I don't think that the word love is excluded. Surely Satan is hard at work in diminishing the world's and the church's understanding of what true love is. But I think we've made that term loving God equivalent with all kinds of other love that we express in our daily lives. And as such, we've really brought its meaning down into what it never intended to be. We, we made our loving God no different than that we love chocolate or that we love a warm fire or that we love the beach or any other number of things that we say that we love. The casualness of our culture has spilled over into the church. But the fear of the Lord is absent from our world. And Romans 3.18 accurately diagnoses that about our culture because it says that there is no fear of God before their eyes. And if you want to know how in the world a 2,000-year-old book and group of books could be relevant for today, that's it right there. It accurately diagnoses the condition of the human heart. And it also gives the remedy. And that's found in Jesus Christ. And so I think it's important for us today and in this hour that we look to recover back into our conversations the fear of the Lord. We need to get back to the basics. But secondly, and more importantly, is where it all begins. And that is we need to recover the fear of the Lord in our own hearts. We need to be a people who fear the Lord. And I can tell you from my life, Even as I study God's Word, I prepare sermons, I listen to preachers all the time. I'm always taking in something every day about God, praying, serving, listening, reading. I need more of the Lord. I need more of the fear of the Lord. I think we all do. But listen, we being the church of Jesus Christ will have absolutely no effectiveness in ministry. We're going to have no fruit in evangelism. We're going to have no growth in our sanctification, no progression in our personal holiness if we do not first have a con- and continue in the fear of God ourselves. John Bunyan said in his book, The Fear of God, he said this quote. He said, quote, There is no duty performed by us that can by any means be accepted of God if it is not to be seasoned with godly fear. Think about that statement. Let me read that to you one more time. There is no duty performed by us that can by any means be accepted of God if it not be seasoned with godly fear. So think about your struggle with sin this week and your obedience to Him. Did you do so in the fear of the Lord. Philippians 2.12 says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and the Spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, Think about yourself coming to church this morning to worship. Did you do so in the fear of the Lord? Psalm 2.11 says, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. And that word for reverence there can also be translated fear. Psalm 5.7 in the ESV it says, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Think about 
any part of your life this week, no matter how big it was or how small it was, any business transaction you did, any interaction with someone you may have had, any decision that you've had to make, any counsel that you gave, any time that you may have thought about wasting, any aspiration that you had, any plans that you made, did you do so in the fear of the Lord? 1 Peter 1.17 says that if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. The fear of God must be a dominant aspect in your day-to-day life. You must yield up every part of yourself to the fear of the Lord. And in order to be spiritually healthy, in order to make any progression in the faith once delivered to the saints, you must do so in the fear of the Lord. And so that means, guess what? You've got to work at it. That means the first place that it begins is going to be between your heart and God. David wrote as a prayer in Psalm 86, 86, 11. He said, teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Or in the NIV it reads, it says, Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. And so we need to join David in this prayer. And we need to recover the fear of the Lord in our own hearts. And so I want to read our text this morning, beginning in verse 4 of Luke chapter 12. And I want to answer the questions that we left off with last week. Namely, what does a God-fearing person look like? What comfort do we have in fearing the Lord? So if you're there with me in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 4, we're going to read to verse 7. I want to invite you, if you're able to stand with me, for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 4 to verse 7, God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word says this, I say to you, my friends, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We just pray that it might encourage us, instruct us, and exhort us, and correct us if necessary, God. Help us to live a life in the fear of the Lord, seeking you, drawing near to you, abiding in you. God, we just pray our hearts and minds might be encouraged and enlightened this morning. We thank you for your word, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we started to try to understand what exactly the fear of the Lord is. And we looked at the distinction that the reformer Martin Luther made between an unholy fear and a godly fear. And there were two Latin terms that we used there to make that distinction. The first term, if you recall, was the term servile fear. Servile, S-E-R-V-I-L-E. And and servile simply is a word that means slave. Servile fear is living under the hands of an angry tormentor or, or like being under a jailer. You've got this constant anxiety because you feel like you're going to be beat down all the time. 
You have a, a fear of harm. You have a fear of danger. And your relationship is built on this dread because you're in constant terror for the one whom you fear. It's, it's looking at God like a divine ogre. But then we talked about the other type of fear, the godly fear, and that's another Latin word that we used, and that was called filial fear. Filial, and that's F-I-L-I-A-L. And, and that's where we get the idea, the concept of family. And so in this regard, the fear of the Lord is like a child who looks up to his father in awe. It's a, a tremendous amount of respect so that you're not motivated out of fear of torture or punishment, but you're motivated because you don't want to displease him. You, you find in, them, in him your source of security. You find in him love and you even find joy and you delight to be with him and to please him. And so when it comes to fearing the Lord, you find pleasing Him and obeying Him to be a delight and not a burden. As Sinclair Ferguson, he, he de, uh, explained this fear. He said it's this indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, pleasure, joy, and awe which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what He's done for us. And so last week we saw how Jesus directed us and the disciples to the proper object of our fear in verses 4 and 5 in our text. And that is that object is God and God alone. He says in verse 4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that have no more that they can do to you. In other words, what he's saying here is that because of following me, number one, because you are now my friends... You should take to heart that your enemies are absolutely powerless. Killing the body is all that they're going to be able to do. And you might see, think to yourself, man, death seems like a pretty bad deal, right? You might have a tendency to, to think about self-preservation. You might think that, man, isn't death really the worst thing that can happen to somebody? What's worse than dying? Jesus is not going to leave them with some empty words here. But he's going to demonstrate this very truth, and he's going to demonstrate it with power. Because it's not going to be too long from this time that he's going to come to Bethany, and he's going to find Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus in John chapter 12, or rather John chapter 11, excuse me. But there's a problem before he gets there. And just as he's coming, he hears that Lazarus has fell ill. And then eventually he dies. But in John chapter 11, verse 4, before Lazarus died, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And before he arrives there, Lazarus does in fact die. And he's buried in a tomb and he's there for four days. And he, he makes his way to the city and he finds Mary and Martha. And he says, let's go to the, your brother's tomb. And in verse 39 of John chapter 11, it says this. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead for four days. Now, if you ever love any verse in the King James Bible, it's this one because it says, Lord, behold, he stinketh, right? He smells bad. He's been in there four days. So in verse 41, they moved the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, in verse 43, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. 
The man who died had come forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around him with cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And so Lazarus comes back to life. But, but can you imagine after this, the disciples and Lazarus' understanding of Jesus' words when he says, don't fear those who can kill the body. I mean, would Lazarus ever remotely possibly be afraid of dying ever again? I mean, wouldn't he be able to stand in front of any danger or any threat and be able to just laugh at them and say, what are you going to do? You going to kill me? Haven't you heard? Death is dead. Death is dead. My friend Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in him, he will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in him will never die. Beloved Christian, this is the blessed hope that you have confidence and you can live for. Death is not the end for us. But you should by no means fear man, but you should fear the one who has that power over death, and it's not man. Take that point, that they can take you to that point, rather, to death, but nothing beyond. And so in verse 5, he tells them, he directs them to the rightful object of their fear, and he says, that is God. He says in verse 5, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, Fear him. And so the, what, what the point of what he is saying is here is that the power to bring about this momentary physical death is not to be compared with the one who has the power to rightfully and justly cast someone into eternal hell. And, and that might make you cringe a bit. You know, someone going to, to hell for eternity. And I would tell you two things. First of all, I would tell you this, that the only place that you are going to get absolute, exacting, perfect justice with ultimate precision and the utmost precision is before Almighty God. There is no other in this world that is going to execute their judgments in perfect righteousness besides the Lord. No one could possibly do so with the infinite wisdom that God alone has. No one could even remotely come close to doing so with inexhaustible knowledge, incomparable in his judgments, boundless in his understanding, and requiring the counsel of no one but himself. And then secondly... If the thought of someone being cast into hell and being eternally punished for their sin doesn't seem to make sense to you, as you think the punishment doesn't fit the crime, I would say to you that you don't understand the holiness of God. He is not 99.9999% holy. He is infinitely Pure in His holiness. And we could exhaust all the adjectives that are available to us to describe Him and still fall short of adequately describing the holiness of God. In fact, of all the qualifiers that are used to describe the very name of God, the word holy is used more times in the Old Testament than any other put together. He is solitary in His majesty. He is unique in His excellency. He is peerless in His perfections. 
Exodus 15.11 says, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, and working wonders? He's not just holy, but as the angels cry out in Isaiah chapter 6, He is holy, holy, holy. If you think it's not just, you don't understand the holiness of the one that's been offended. Jesus says to his disciples and to us, this is the one whom you should fear. This is the one who should command your adoration and your reverence and your awe. And that is God. God is the one who has the power and the authority, not man. Man's authority is a derived authority from God alone. And therefore, you should fear him. Are you more concerned about looking dumb or looking not cool before your friends and then instead of having a, fe- and having a fear of people more than you are actually about sinning and fearing the Lord? As you live your life, do you seem to have this church persona where you can come in and you can ch- talk Christianese and you can act all spiritual and then as soon as you're away from this place and from the people in your life, it is a totally different you? If that's the case, you might be fearing man more than you're fearing God. And so, what exactly does a God-fearing person look like? What does a God-fearer look like? And I want to be honest with you. Fearing the Lord is used 150 times in the Bible, and we're not going to exhaust it. But I want to give you at least four things about what a God-fearing person looks like. Number one. A God-fearing person, they live all of their life in the conscious presence of God. They live all of their life in the conscious presence of God. And there's a, a Latin phrase here that describes this type of living, and it is quorum Deo. Some of you have probably heard that word. I've used it before. In other words, quorum Deo means that you are living your life before the face of God. It's as if God is right there in front of you and he never leaves or moves from that position. As R.C. Sproul described it, he said, it's the big idea of the Christian life and that everything that we do and wherever we do it is done so that the under the constant gaze of God. There is no place to hide from God. He alone possesses immensity and omnipresence. Immensity is that He is everywhere in relation to space. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Solomon said in 1 Kings 8.27 when he was dedicating the temple, he said, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less than this house which I have built. God is everywhere in relation to space, his immensity. And yet he also possesses omnipresence. And that is his relation to us. Psalm 139, 7 through 10 says it this way when he says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. You can't escape the presence of God. Proverbs 15.3 says that the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. 
And Jeremiah 23, 24 brings these two concepts of immensity and omnipresence together. When he writes, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? And so to live quorum Deo is to live your life knowing that you are under the constant watchful eye of God. It's almost a matter of integrity, really. There, there is no double life in you. There's no compartmentalizing your life into this religious life and this non-religious life because you know God is always there. As J.C. Ryle once put it, he said, quote, Do nothing that you would not like God to see. Say nothing that you would not like God to hear. Write nothing that you would not like God to read. Go no place where you would not like God to find you. Read no book which you would not like God to say, show that to me. Never spend your time in such a way that you would not like to have God come to you and say, what are you doing? That's living Coram Deo. And so a God-fearing person is one who lives all of their life under the conscious presence of God. The second thing, they live all of their life in complete dependence of the Lord. They live all of their life in the complete dependence of the Lord. And so a God-fearing person will recognize that every aspect of their life, everything that they have, every breath that they take, every circumstance that comes their way, every plan that they make is done so in the complete and utter dependence upon God. We are dependent upon God for life itself. Psalm 31:15 David writes, "My time is in your hands." Acts 17:24 through 25 says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served with human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Acts 17, 28 says, For in him we live and we move and we exist. And although we may make plans to do this or that, or go here or go there, a God-fearing person will do so knowing that it is only possible in the dependence upon God. James 4, 13 through 15 puts it this way. It says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Indeed, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. And so there's another Latin phrase. It's great. I love these Latin phrases, right? There's another Latin phrase that describes this, and that is Deo Valente. Deo Valente. It's V-O-L-E-N-T-E. And it literally means God willing. Some people used to sign letters, I understand, DV, Deo Valente. I'll I'll come to you next year, DV, Deo Valente, Lord willing. And it's saying that the success of our plans and the future things that we hope for and we long for to happen are only going to come about if God so wills it to happen. Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of a man plays his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. None of us know what's going to happen tomorrow. None of us knows what the next day is going to bring. 
or even the next hour for that matter. And sometimes things don't go as planned. And that's why, honestly, I've got job security in my part-time employment because in, in my gig in the emergency services because no one calls me because they plan for this or that to happen. And that's why they call it an emergency, right? It's not something that they thought was going to happen. Something bad has happened because they didn't exactly foresee that it was going to occur. A baby wouldn't work, wake up in, in his crib after grandma goes and picks it up after a nap. A tree falls on a guy when he's trying to cut it down. A trip that they planned to go somewhere got, short, got cut short because they got smashed to smithereens because of a semi-truck on a highway. A child's life is cut short because of fire overnight. None of these things were foreseen in planned events. None of them. And ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to things eternal, you should leave absolutely nothing at stake. You shouldn't gamble when your soul is on the line. And if you're not a Christian here this morning and you think that you're just going to repent right before you die, surely you need to realize that you do not know the time and the manner and the place of your death. And you need to remember that there were two thieves on that cross. And one of them didn't make it. As J.C. Ryle said, this one penitent thief was converted in the last hour so that no man might despair. But I warn you, only one was converted so that no man might presume. But if we are going to live in the constant dependence of, for our life itself, we have to understand what life is all about. You are not guaranteed your next day. You're not guaranteed your next hour. You're not guaranteed your next minute. And the question for you is, are you living for eternity? You are living under the dependence of God, the dependence of God, rather, whether you know it or not. And so a God-fearing person, you're going to live your life under the conscience presence of God. Second thing is they're going to live their life under the complete dependence of God. And the third thing is they will live all of their life for the glory of God. In other words, the very purpose of your life the very thing that you should wake up your morning and in the morning for, the things that you should engage in or the chief end of your very existence is for the purpose of bringing glory to God. It should be the primary goal upon which you make your decisions in your life. Should I go here or there is dependent upon will it bring about the most glory of God? Should I marry this person or that person is first weighed with the question, will this person allow me to bring about the most glory and honor to God? Should I take this job or should I take that job? Should first be consulted with the question, will it allow me or will it hinder me from bringing about the most glory to God? Every decision that is made, every option that is considered, everything that we engage in from the most mundane to the most important in our lives is first asked with the question is, will it bring about the most glory of God? Will it bring honor to him or not? Will it put God in the spotlight or myself? Will it bring him to open shame or cause his fame to be known? A God-fearing person will seek to bring about the most glory to God in whatever they do. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. He says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so what is your aim in your life? What is it that you have set your sights on? Is it to be successful? 
Is it to be happy? Is it to be prosperous or well-off? Does your aim terminate in yourself or your family? Or does your aim terminate in glorifying God? All other goals that we have in our life must be secondary to the pursuit of glorifying God. Matthew 6, 33, Jesus said it to us like this. He said, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. So a God-fearing person will live under the conscious presence of God. They'll live in complete dependence upon God. They'll live their life for the glory of God. And then number four, they will live in a sense of the love and the kindness of God. And we see that in our verses, in verse 6 and 7 of our text. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And so this is the tension that we see in being in the fear of God. Not only is he, he high and lifted up, not only is he infinite in wisdom and majestic in glory and wondrous in all of his ways, not only is he abounding with loving kindness and, and rich in mercy and girded with might and strength, and because of all those things and so many, many, many more, he deserves our awe and our reverence and our admiration. But the other side is that, is that he cares for us and he's merciful to us and he relates to us As a father, the smallest of birds, the most mundane of all things that are sold in the marketplace, that are are sold for a few measly pennies, are not forgotten by God. It doesn't escape his notice. And so it is with those who fear the Lord. He hasn't allowed us to remain in our sins because he's provided a way of escape through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're no longer strangers and aliens, but have been brought near to him. And because he first loved us, he is worthy of our fear and our admiration and our awe. Psalm 130 verses 3 through 4 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Psalm 147 verse 11 says, The Lord favors those who fear Him, those who wait for His loving kindness. Are you a God-fearing person this morning? Are you living your life, Coram Deo, before the presence of the face of God? Are you living in complete dependence upon God? Deo Valente, right? Are you living your life for the glory of God? Are you living in the sense of the love and the kindness of God and how merciful He's been to you? Are you taking it for granted? Your greatest joy in this life and the next will only come about if you are living in the fear of the Lord. Psalm 128 verse 4 says this, Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed. That's happy. Your greatest source of happiness and joy, and pleasure. It says this, Thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Are you a God-fearing person this morning? Let's pray. Father, we, we hear some of your divine attributes, your might, your power, your wisdom, your holiness, As we dwell on those things, Lord, we stand in awe of you. 
Lord, we just want to pray with David to unite our hearts in fear of you. But Lord, as we look upon all those things, let us not forget the other side that you have not dealt with us as you ought to have. You've called us. You've redeemed us. You've brought us near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that whoever believes on him shall not perish, but have eternal life with you. God, if there is anyone here that does not know that and does not walk in the fear of you, Lord, I just pray today might be the day of salvation. We know not the day nor the hour, but we know that after, the de- after death, then comes the judgment, Lord. And I pray if there's anyone here wandering, anyone here that is not walking with you, Lord, that they might seek you, that they might come home to you. But Lord, for those of us that do know you and have repented of our sins, Lord, we just pray that this might be encouraging to us, that we might walk more in the fear of the Lord. Help us to adore you more and revere you more and glorify you more, God. We just pray all these things in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.